HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, the first cheesemaking co-op in Vermont. For more information, visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, uh, and you're tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host today, Erin Fairbanks, and we are live in studio with Sarah Teal of the Adirondack Grazers. Sarah, welcome to the studio. Thanks very much, Erin. I got really nervous because um, I um, I always mispronounce Adirondack. I always want to say Adirondack. I'm, I'm not really sure why. It's like a very challenging word. I know I'm going to screw it up again, so I'm just putting that out there. Um, so beef cooperative based in, uh, upstate New York, let's, uh, let's kind of scale back to the beginning. I mean, how, uh, how did this idea come, come about? Like, how did you get involved? Because you, you don't come from a farming background. Is that right? Well, my, my father was a large animal vet and I did grow up in the countryside in England. But, uh, since I've been living in America in 1983, I've lived in New York. So, but my husband has a farm on the New York Vermont border, and he's had it for thirty years, and we've been together for seventeen. So I've been going up there for a long time, and our local farmer always farmed the farm, but uh, he sold his dairy herd, which is what a lot of farmers are having to do up there. And the minute he did that, our fields started to go fallow and go down. So he suggested we start a grass-fed beef herd which was fine, except I met with the Cornell Cooperative Extension representative, Sandy Buxton, and figured out that actually as one farm you can't sell beef. I mean, you can sell up there, but it costs more to raise them than you can sell them for, which is crazy. So I figured, well, if we got a group of farmers together, we could start bringing our beef down to New York and selling it for some price that made some sense. <laughs> Um, so Sandy agreed to hold a first meeting, November 11th, November 4th, 2011, and 50 farms turned up. Wow. So we realized we were onto something. Yeah, were you surprised? I mean, had, I mean, the, obviously there was probably some buzz out and about when you announced that the meeting would be happening. Yeah. Um, were you expecting such a turnout? or We didn't know what to expect. I mean, it was good that we had um, Dwayne Birch, my local farmer, with us. 
because it meant that we were sort of legitimate and we had Sandy from the Cornell Extension. Um, but we didn't know what to expect. And when that many people arrived in the room, it, it surprised all of us. But um, there are a lot of people up there producing really beautiful beef, 100% grass-fed or grain-finished, and with no market. And so what they said was, we need help marketing and we need help with sales. And so we decided that it was worth it to try to put us all together um, as a group, which is pretty funny because everyone's very different. Well, I think farmers are known for for being quite individual. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I never realized that um, here it would be, you know, a year and something later and I would still be doing this or that the sales part of it would end up on me. But um, because I'm in New York City and I'm the only one in New York City and because I love chefs and I, you know, I'm really interested in, in good butchers, um, it kind of fell on me to run around and meet everybody. So, I, you know, New York has a history of... Uh, producing a lot of fluid milk, you know, d dairy cows. Um, and the farms that you're working with are people who have uh, transitioned out of dairy or are doing dairy and looking to supplement a an income or, or what kind of uh, niche are they operating in or does it kind of vary between farmers? Well, a lot of them have always done, um, have done dairy and, but have always done some beef. Um, like the Larsons, they sell their milk to consider Bardwell, actually, and they have a dairy herd of, of Jerseys. But they've always kept a herd of Devons for beef. Um, but they had no real market for it. They sell it out of a deep freeze off the farm. And so I first started talking to the Larsons very early on and said, well, what do you think? How should we go about this? And, and um, it grew from there. But, but yes, a lot of our farmers have either been like our local farmer Duane and sold their dairy herd but they've always kept beef and a lot of them have always had it be grass-fed they've just never that's just the way they raise their beef and they never change so for them they think it's quite funny that it's this new uh, thing to, to have purely grass-fed beef but so for folks who are, you know are looking like you know what's the difference between raising an animal for beef and raising an animal for dairy are, are you talking about uh, different breeds, different yeah. ages, different... What, what's, what's the difference if I'm a dairy farmer and I have these kind of separate herds? Well, there are different breeds that are better for dairy, like Jerseys or like Holsteins. And there are different breeds that are better for, for, for beef. And for grass-fed, it, there are some that are specifically good for grass, um, like the Devon or the Belted Galloway or the Dexter, Little Dexters. Um, but then also that we, my particular farm, we have Angus. But they're Angus that have now been on grass for generations and generations. Because if you just took a commercial Angus animal and expected it to be grass all of a sudden, it, takes, it wouldn't be very good beef. So it takes a few generations for them to really learn to fatten on beef. And we, um, our farmers, uh, feed them baleage during the winter, which is sort of fermented grass so they keep their weight up through the winter. So what, if someone's looking to purchase from the co-op, um, you are selling right now into restaurants, into butcher shops, and mm -hmm. to individual consumers? Yeah, we've, well, we've started um, doing individuals because we've started bringing, we've started doing a line of frozen inventory, um, and we've been selling some of that for individuals or for restaurants through Farmer's Web or Plow. 
And um, so we've started a, a frozen line. But you can, here in New York City, you can buy it in Cirielos and Grand Central Station, Meat Hook in Brooklyn. Um, there are different places where, and of course at Heritage Foods in Essex Street Market. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna like, which, is, <laughs> which is great. My favorite place to buy, of yeah, course. Yeah, and where Emily has a particular fondness for Devons, so we've been sending her Devons. So, you know, as you're looking to uh, form this uh, co-op of, um, of of farmers raising animals for beef, um, you know, you have a variety of farms, farm sizes, a variety of breeds. What are the kind of protocols that you establish for entry into the co-op? Um, and, and how did you kind of come up with what those were? Yeah, it took us a while. I mean, I mean actually, we did it fairly fast, but it, it did take us a while to establish what those protocols would be. We had that first meeting in November and we weren't incorporated, we weren't formed until the following June. And in that time, we met every week to discuss exactly that, what the protocols would be. And um, we looked at other people's protocols um, to make sure that it was sort of in line. But, you know, no no growth hormones, uh, no use of antibiotics. There, They can use if a cow is sick they can use it but take it out of circulation for several months um you know no feedlots uh ideally most of our farmers have closed herds so they breed their own um that's an ideal but it's not and then talking about soil maintenance and the best grasses and so we came up with our protocols which are on our website (laughs) www.adkgrazers.com um and various membership agreements and everybody signs a membership agreement and agrees to observe the protocols and then we do these animal evaluation forms so every time a farmer drops off a cow they sign a form that talks about the breed and the weight and the way it was raised and is there something um you know is new york state or is washington county where you're doing a lot of your work is it particularly suited to a grass-based farming model or is, is that something you're kind of exploring and trying to make no, work I think it's particularly suited it's incredibly rich soil up there the grass is beautiful um, and what we're trying to do is bring back a lot of the fields like our fields had gone kind of messed up so we took a year or two to to um, bring them back and to restore them um, and anything grows up there you put anything in the ground it grows like a weed <laughs> <laughs> and especially now it's incredibly green because of all the rain but it's, um, I do think it is particularly suited. It's very, very rich land. So I, you know, the, like the idea of a cooperative, you know, selling beef, obviously none of that is like a particularly new or revolutionary thing. And I always wonder, um, especially now, there seems to be a lot of smaller scale distribution models um, in the egg world, you know, for vegetable producers, for mm-hmm. livestock producers, um, kind of looking to come in and do something similar um, I'm wondering, like, how, when you're looking to start something, what are the models that you look to so you realize, you know, oh, we don't want to repeat these mistakes, or why has this kind of not worked here? I mean, right. if we have this great land, we have these great genetics, we have this great beef, right. you know, what's the problem? Well, the problem's been partly uh, New York City. Partly it's only, it's less getting going I, than I had realized, actually. the demand. I think the demand is there. But it's taken a lot of chefs, a lot of thinking to how to buy our beef, we, we, you know, and, and how to use it properly and how to cook it properly. You cook it less. Um, Michael Anthony at Gramercy Tavern, 
They've been ordering a side a week since January, and, and he's amazing because he'll use every bit, but he's really rare. Um, so it's down here, and it's taken, yes, the, the you know, Marlowe and Daughters and the Meat Hook and others and Heritage to come in on this. So it's taken a while for that. Um, but then it's distribution, it's getting it down here. And if we didn't have regional access, if something happened to regional access who bring our beef down here, um, they're the only people, <laughs> they're it. Who are doing so, that. Well, let's, yeah. yeah, let's talk about a little bit of that necessary infrastructure. So once you, you know, you have the farms um, who are raising the animals, so you have, you know, the land, you have the animals, the genetics, and you have all the services that go into supporting the farmers, the, yeah. you know, tractor supply dealers Vets. and <laughs> veterinarian yeah. services. So those all have to be in place. Mm-hmm. Which be- we're lucky enough to just about that we still have. Up in Washington. Yeah, County. yeah. yeah. So, so then, uh, you know, as a someone in your shoes is looking, the next step I think in this process is the the slaughter and processing mm-hmm. facilities. So, can you talk a little bit about how you found the facility that you're working with and and what it was you were kind of looking for and maybe some of the challenges in that search? Yeah, no, the the slaughterhouse is 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 a real challenge, and there are a lot of states that have very few. I don't think Vermont has very many, um, and we we started out with one that just didn't work out. Um, but we're lucky enough to have Eagle Bridge, and Eagle Bridge custom meats are very, very good. And it's taken us a while, but we've been establishing set dates with them, so we have we have slots always each week set aside for us. Um, and they've been working with us to develop the frozen product, so they're they're quite. It's quite an art actually to properly caravac and wrap beef, um, and they're they're good at it. Their cutters are good. You know, it takes having a really good slaughterhouse and working really closely with them to get everything right. So the, you know, the initial, the initial facility that you were working with, I mean, what are some, what are some of the challenges that kind of led you to, to move away from them? And, and, you know, you obviously found Eagle Bridge and are happy with them, but I mean, is it the, the slaughtering? Is it the, the packaging? Is yeah. it the customer service? I mean... It's, it's kind of... It's, it's everything. It's the cleanliness. The one we were working with before, USDA kept shutting them down. You can't have that because if you are expecting our beef in Essex Street Market, you, you, know, you need it, or Gramercy Tavern, they need it, and there's no shutting it down. So um, Eagle Bridge is just, they're very buttoned up. They're very clean. They're very organized. They're online. So emailing them is easy. That's sometimes a challenge. Just Um, the basic community. Just the basic, you know, keeping it all going. It's a very complex business, actually, running a slaughterhouse. It's really tough. So once you have the meat, it's been slaughtered, um, you know, you've figured out the cuts, the cryovacking, uh, the freezing and then the like the storage for transport. Mm-hmm. Then you identified regional access, and regional yeah. access basically is a delivery distribution system. Yeah, they're uh, they've been around for a while, so they do know what they're doing, which is great. And they have these big trucks, and they come into the city several times a week. And they've been picking up at Eagle Bridge every week for us, and bring it into New York on Mondays. And so far, so good. <laughs> nice. Um, I, and I wonder, I mean, do you have a sense of, like, how how New York State compares to other, you know, regions of the country? I mean, are the challenges with regards to distribution, with regards to slaughterhouse um, access yeah. and quality? I mean, are we ahead of the curve, behind the curve, on, on average? Well, do you have, I mean, a sense of... 
I don't know. I mean, that there are certain states, like I said, that don't have any small slaughterhouses left at all. And that's, that's a problem. If we get bigger than Eagle Bridge, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> we'll have to find the next one. Um, so there, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. And also it's a challenge having your group of people who are very, very, very libertarian and independent and having them work together. And we have a board and we speak every week and we meet every month. But bringing that together isn't, isn't actually easy and, and you have to work hard at it. it it's been tough. There have been moments where you're like, oh, my God. But um, so it takes a particular group of people, I think, to really keep at it yeah well it's like one of those business models that's almost dependent on the passion of its kind of founding members to sustain yeah. it because ultimately at least initially the kind of you know the the money isn't there to You're be right. kind of like paying the salaries no. for initially it, it's getting every all those systems in place that don't exist anymore for local foods to get to the cities and this is something that's happening all across the country and you'd think, oh, well, this is easy. Well, I mean, I did think <laughs> this is easy. You start a co-op and off you go. And it's just not like that because the systems aren't there. They're set up for an, an industrialized food system and for bringing in enormous numbers of animals from feedlots. And uh, it, the alternative just isn't there. And I got interested in doing this because I was a producer on an HBO series called The Way to the Nation. And I filmed with a lot of farmers all across the country. And I met um, a group on the Kansas-Missouri border called Good Natured Family Farms, Good Natured Farms, and they had a meat co-op. And I just thought, well, but there's very few. I mean, uh, when I was looking for protocols, looking for how to do this all across the country, there's very few. Um, but Diana Endicott started it in, in Kansas, and I thought, well, you know, <laughs> she inspired me to... Um, think about it over here. So you, yeah, it sounds like you kind of, uh, you know, bit off quite a quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I had realized quite how much I had bitten off. Well, <laughs> I, I want to move on. We need to take just a short break, uh, but when we come back, I do want to talk about some of the models uh, from that area that came before you and, yeah. and kind of lessons learned. So hang tight. We are in the studio with Sarah Teal of the Adirondack Grazers talking beef co-ops. We'll be right back. Stay tuned, everyone. You're listening to Cheese Gainsburg by Taxstar on the Heritage Radio Network.org. This is the Farm Report.
Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York, 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Bardwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. Thanks. We are back. You're tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are talking uh, beef co-op models uh, with Sarah Thiel of the Adirondack Grazers. So there was uh, another kind of similar uh, kind of farm distribution marketing arm in that area called uh, Farm to Chef, yeah. and and then Farm to Chef was sold to, to Basis and became right. Basis Farm to Chef. And I think along the way... Um, that idea, which started out very similar, I think, to the co-op that you put together, fell apart for a variety of reasons. And I know that you were able to kind of learn from some of the, learn some lessons yeah. from from that. And I'm wondering if you can kind of highlight for us what were some of the pitfalls that you know you were able to identify from that model and things that you're doing or people that you're bringing in to your organization to prevent that from right. That was actually that's actually part of the advantage of having Cornell Cooperative Extension because they were very involved in Farm to Chef in the beginning, in bringing it in. So one of the first people I went to see was a woman called Paula who was very very involved in setting that up, and I said, okay, what should we do differently? And Farm to Chef wasn't um, really a cooperative. People invested in it, they, and they're di- at different levels. So some people put quite a bit of money into it. Farmers put money into it to set it up. And, um, and at different levels. And so those who had put more in were interested when they were, there was an offer on the table to buy them out. Um, but we're not like that. Um, we're, non, we're not officially a non-profit, but we are non-profit. But um, everyone puts in the same amount. Um, we've, it's, it costs $1,000 to be a member. So you aren't really, well, you are investing in it, but it's, um, it's a different kind of model. Different structure. Very different structure. Everyone's e- totally equal. Um, and I, yeah, I, it's a very, very different different model. And also um, uh, I spoke to Mike Yazzie, who was very involved in it from Flying Pigs and got his advice. And one of the things we did do differently is that they had trucks, which is Ramus from White Clover Farm was driving up and down to the city. We decided pretty early on that we weren't going to go into the trucking business. And we weren't, there are people who are good at that, and, and we weren't them. Right. And so we weren't going to try and do that, so, which I think was a good decision, actually, because there's always problems, you know, with trucks breaking down and finding good drivers, and luckily that's not our problem. <laughs> so the kind of basic cost of the co-op as an organization include, I mean, I'm sure there's like a, some... You know, there's a small staff, there mm-hmm. must be maybe insurance, then there's yep. kind of the marketing and the sales. Like, what am, am I missing anything? No, that was about it, putting together logos and things. But we were lucky enough to get a, a SARE grant for a farmer's grant. I think it's USDA, but University of Vermont 
twice. But what was amazing was actually they invested in us before we were really, <laughs> really together. Very, very early on, and it's a very small grant, but it helped pay for the lawyer, it helped pay for the logo, it helped bring a lot of things together that we couldn't otherwise have paid for, um, which was great. And then um, we were lucky enough to get um, a loan from Farm Credit East, uh, a very again, small, but these things really help. Um, we just got our first grant from a foundation. Um, uh, those things help establish... Um, and the logo, you know, we, uh, Jen Goggin from Farmer's Web, her sister Caroline did for us, nice. <laughs> which was great. Um, uh, and then the first website we had was done by one of our farmers. Um, we, and then um, a friend of Lisa's actually did a website for us very, very cheaply, a, um, a wonderful guy who, um, Sonnet Media, who really does websites for authors, did okay. one for us. Um, for virtually nothing. So, you know, there's been people that have come through and helped. So, I mean, you set up the the website, you have the product, but it's not like you build it and they will come. I mean, you still have to do the kind of outreach yeah. and the actual sales yep. to the chefs, to the retailers. And at this point, you're competing with pretty established organizations here in the city that have been selling meat into restaurants, into butcher shops for um generations there you know are the kind of you know individual farmers that came before you and have established relationships with different chefs so you know what what was the kind of mo for for getting your foot in the door and where do you think that as an organization you guys really set yourself apart from some of the competitors i mean what is it that you have to offer chefs that they're not going to be able to get i mean what makes it worth kind of going through the the, the trouble of working with a you know working with a side of beef versus working with you right. know a case of pre-cut right. steaks or racks or right. well we we can do the pre-cut but um, I think what makes us different is that we really are local we are completely open everyone can come and visit the farms and quite a few people have um, that it's we put the name of the farm on every single package on every beef that comes down here. Um, it's, it's, anyone can come and check it out. Um, and I do think there is something about supporting your local farm community, but there is also something about the grass up there that makes the, the meat itself particularly rich and delicious. Um, and, and I think it is worth supporting local. I mean, I really, I think un, unless we support the farms that are, uh, we're four hours north. We're not Hudson Valley exactly. We're not two hours north. We're four hours. Unless we support those people up there, it's going. You know, we're going to lose it. Um, I think New York State loses a farm every three days. And so if we really do want local, we have to do it now. Um, otherwise, they're going. And that would be such a shame. So it's not... it's not that, you know, people should buy beef to support farmers particularly... But um, that is certainly one of the reasons. But I think also it is very good beef. I just, I genuinely think it's healthier for us. It's not been through systems that I, I have a five-year-old. I wouldn't feed my kid commercial beef anymore. I just wouldn't. 
Well, I, I think that you like really identify one of the things that consumers are looking for, which is that kind of traceability yep. aspect. And the, I think the authenticity, too. I mean, there's so much kind of greenwashing in particular yep. in the world of meat. There's all these labels and tags, yep. you know. With pretty you know, red bonds on them. That are <laughs> very confusing. Yep. And, and being able to kind of uh, connect with uh, a butcher or have a chef kind of, you know, tell you about um, about where their animal is coming from. And I know, like, we were lucky enough through radio and through some of the Heritage Foods team to come up and visit a couple of the farms. Mm-hmm. And and it was really interesting to kind of go see the, the different size of farms, the different breeds. And I think that's one of the other areas that you guys are interested in is that you're working with a variety of breeds. And yeah. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I think the farms that we visited, we saw some Devon, we saw Dexter's. Mm-hmm. Uh, we drove by some of the um, the Belted, Belted Galloways, yeah. and we saw some Angus. Um, so is that something like if a chef is like, you're, that you're looking to, to push this kind of breed conversation forward, or is it beef first, then breed? I mean, how are you kind of dealing with the fact that these animals, you know, even the carcass at the same age is going to be different. Right. Um, there is that whole kind of education aspect, because yeah. most people... I know lately I've been talking to friends about visiting cows. They're like, oh, yes, cows, I love them, you know, the black and white speckled. I'm like, that's not really what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I think that, like, we have come a long way in the in the pork world, kind of mm-hmm. learning about the Berkshires and the Red Waddles and the mm-hmm. Tamworths, and people have that language down a bit more. But with with beef in particular, it seems like kind of you hear Angus, you hear Wagyu, you hear Kobe, but yeah. I don't see much else out the there. Yeah, And the breed does make a difference. Um, there are certain breeds. I mean, some of our, our beef is grain finished, but a, a lot of it's 100% grass. And there are certain breeds that are better on grass um, and that are really good that way. And the Belter Galloways and the Devons um, happen to be really good grass-fed beef. So I think it is worth having that conversation. On the other hand, it's been funny. I mean, I we always tell everybody what's coming down the pike. I mean, we have Charolais too, and 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 it doesn't seem to have made that much of a difference. I mean, um, you know, Gramercy Tavern gets a different breed each week, probably. Um, so it's 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 worth having the conversation. Um, but I, I I think you know, it's so long as it's consistent and it keeps coming. And they tend to be around about the same size. The Dexters happen to be tiny and it's a very special beef. And so we sell that as a specialty item. And we've been talking to Caroline at, at Heritage about selling it as such because it tastes more like pink veal. It's it's very delicate. It's very delicious, but it's very tiny. So if you get a porterhouse, I just gave... Caroline, a porterhouse um, on your plate without realizing that this is a specialty breed, you'd be really shocked. It's about half the size. It's a baby porterhouse. It's a baby porterhouse. Probably what we should be eating anyway, moving towards the smaller portion sizes. Exactly. So in terms of scale, I mean, can you give us a sense of uh, how much beef is running through the system now? And if you like kind of have a magic wand, what would success really look like over Mm -hmm. the next, you know, five years? Yeah. Well, we, 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 it, We've been building slowly, which I think has probably been a very good idea and a good thing, as it turns out. Um, we have slots um, guaranteed at Eagle Bridge. Um, we were doing three a week in the spring. It was a little less in the summer. It's like two a week. Um, we're hoping to get up to four or five a week, starting in the fall. And um, that's fine. And we can definitely do a lot more than that. I get a call 
calls all the time about different farmers that want to join and we can build it up. I want to build it up slowly and surely and make sure that I visit every single farm. I've eaten every single farm's beef. Um, but make sure that we are doing it right. Um, and I think what it would look like, I mean, I've, I had one conversation with Chef Jorge Calazo once, who was the public school system. I mean, I personally would love to see good ground beef in the, in the school systems. Um, that's a little ambitious probably, but maybe one school at a time. But, um, you know, I'd like to see it much more accessible for, for people. I think it's kind of even upstate. We've started to putting our beef, frozen beef, into the local markets up there. You can't get the local beef in the local markets in upstate New York. So I would just like it to be more accessible for people because it is, I think it is healthier for the people. It's better for the animals. It's... it's um, much better for the animals. <laughs> and um, the, as far as the role that the cooperative is playing in the kind of economic viability of these farms, are you guys a piece of the pie for them yeah. or you're the pie? Um, some of our farmers, we're a piece of the pie and some of them, we are the pie, which is a little terrifying. But um, uh, I, it's already making a difference. The Sarah Grant people I was <laughs> made me come up with a spreadsheet to show... Okay, well, what's been the increase in a year from the herd size and the pasture size and the money? And um, money directly to farmers has gone up 115%. And to some of the farmers, when I looked, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, we've been sending really very healthy checks to farmers, which is fantastic. It's unheard of. It's, You know, they've been breeding these animals and selling them in auction or selling them locally at less, you know, less than its cost to, to grow them, which is crazy. You can't do that for too long. You can't. Well, you know, farmers, they just kind of roll their eyes and say that's their life. But it's not sustainable. And this is perhaps a better way. It is a better way to go. And so we have been building the herd sizes. We have been getting the pastures back. We know that we've increased the pasture size that's dedicated to this. And I would just like to see that steadily grow. Yeah, I mean, mm. and you're still pretty brand new. We're still I pretty mean, brand start... new. In a year, we've done, I think we've done pretty well for a year. Yeah, well, and also I think <laughs> it's considering, I mean, the animals that you're bringing in are usually around two years old. Yeah, they're right? 24, they're between 24 and 28 months. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like one of those things I know when I was like doing, you know, charcuterie, you're like, it takes a while to turn those, to ramp those mm -hmm. systems up and to slow them down, which is, I think, another reason to kind of build slowly because yep. should kind of a, you be super dependent on one or two main accounts and those fall out, you can't stop the beef no. if it's coming. They, they, if it's they, coming, it's coming. It keeps coming. And, the, the, and actually, that's why I'm very grateful that we're also doing a frozen. Upstate, people up there understand much more that actually the frozen is very good. And that restaurants, you can, there are restaurants actually in Brooklyn that are ordering our frozen beef. We do these big boxes, so you can order 12 ribeyes or 12 sirloins um, or a box of ground beef, bo big boxes of ground beef. And there are restaurants that are starting to do that because it's just as good. And upstate, they understand that. So the local markets, the smaller markets, are starting to carry our frozen beef. Um, and we've got these little, <laughs> I should have shown you when you were up there, they have a really... So we, we've these freezers that are dedicated to our beef in these small markets, um, which I think is great, you know, and, and it takes some of the pressure off because if you've got only fresh and it's going and it's going and it doesn't stop and somebody changes their mind or they're like, oops, I'm, which happens. Yeah. 
then what do you do? You know, you've sure. got um, 350 pounds worth of just a half an animal yeah. hanging there and uh, like, whoops. Yeah, no, you need to have So um, the frozen is, is a good idea. Well, I think too, I mean, I think bringing the, the kind of frozen aspect into the conversation as a consumer when you're evaluating your priorities um, with regards to your meat consumption, I think that... You know, people generally have this idea that frozen meat is going to have a, you know, it's not going to be as as literally as fresh or that the texture is not going to be quite the same. So things have changed. The way they now do frozen has changed. It's flash. It's like immediate. It goes straight into the cryovac, um, which is very good. Um, it's going into these markets and going out very fast. Regional right. Access actually carries it on, on their um, catalog. And uh, no, too. But I'm just thinking, so like, if your evaluative criteria includes kind of the sustainability for the land, the economics for the farmer, mm -hmm. the diversity of the breeds. You know, I think it's like you have to weigh all those things and then make a decision as a consumer. And it seems like, you know, frozen or fresh, that's like just one piece of this like larger decision making. Yeah. Um, spectrum. Anyway, we are unfortunately out of time, but if folks want to find out more about the Adirondack Grazers, um, places where to get the beef, profiles on their farm, definitely visit them at www.adkgrazers.com. Sarah, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Lovely to have you. Always lovely to have a guest in studio. Not something I'm often able to do, but that is the, the name of the game here on The Farm Report. Thanks so much for tuning in. This, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, can be found for free on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find us on iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. We are a membership-based uh, and uh, fully supported by you guys. So click that Donate tab, become a member today. Uh, if you sign up for the household membership at 120, you get one of our fabulous new Heritage Radio totes guaranteed to be the most stylish uh, tote carrier on your block or in your town or wherever you may be so, so grab that and stay tuned in we'll be back next week thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank, 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 thank.
Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, third generation cure masters producing the country's best dry cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit SurreyFarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right, thanks for tuning in to the Grow NYC Market Update. We got a new voice on the other end of the line today. Welcome to Caroline. Hi, thanks for having me on, Aaron. Awesome. So we are continuing our, our tour day markets, um, making our way around the city's best green markets. Where are we heading today? Yeah, this week uh, we're going to head over to our brand new West 42nd Street Market, which is located between 11th and 12th Avenues in Manhattan. Um, it sets up every Wednesday right outside of a new apartment tower over there, um, which has a really pleasant outdoor square where shoppers can sit and enjoy the breezes coming off the Hudson. Um, it has particularly friendly and charismatic farmers over there, outdoor seating in the square, and a ton of samples on offer from the bakeries and the cheese maker and fruit stalls. Um, so I have faith that anybody could easily while away a summer morning there. Awesome. Well, who should we be looking out for uh, at the market and what, what's looking good right now? Yeah, this market has a really solid lineup. Um, at this time of, of year in particular, the smell of Toygo Orchard's peaches just hits you in the face when you first approach the market. Um, and all of their tree fruit is amazing. Um, Sarah, the market manager, manager there actually was using Toygo's Bloody Mary mix and Joe Morgeowicz's peppery arugula to make virgin Bloody Marys for the cooking demonstration this week. Um, and a few of the other farmers had used the mix for parties this summer and reported that it was a hit. Um, there are two excellent bakeries in the market, Las Delicias, um, specializes in a variety of unique sweet treats like scones and muffins um, and tarts that feature our farmer's fruit, while Central Bakery does the savory thing just right. I tried one of their cheesy spinach twists for breakfast, and it really hit the spot. Um, Morgewitz Produce brings beautiful veggies from the Black Dirt region in Orange County, New York, um, and sells them at a, an incredible value. Um, Joe himself actually comes down to the market, and when he's not busy running his fourth-generation farm, he actually dances traditional Polish dance. Um, it's awesome. There are videos of him on YouTube, and I would encourage you to check it out. He's amazingly talented. <laughs> um, and for those looking for local certified organic produce, um, it's a, just a dream to shop at Norwich Meadows stand. Um, and then rounding out the market is Nature's Way um, with their honey, Millport Dairy with their farm fresh eggs and cheese, and DePaula Turkey from New Jersey. Um, I actually think that uh, DePaula's turkey burgers with some slices of Millport Dairy horseradish cheddar on a central bakery uh, multigrain roll would be the perfect weeknight dinner. Excellent. Well, I know when people hear 42nd Street, they think Times Square. And if you're a New Yorker, you get a little nervous. But you guys are over on the west side. So what should we be checking out um, when we're up at the market? Yeah, once you get away from the hecticness of, um, of uh, you know, Times Square, it gets really pleasant over by the river. Um, so the R Hudson River is actually a stone's throw away. 
Um, and running alongside it is this fantastic bike path that stretches along practically the entire length of Manhattan. Um, so I think that the market would be the perfect pit stop for a Westsiders morning ride. Um, and then right across 12th Avenue is a great green space uh, right on the river with a dog park and lots of people-watching opportunities. Um, and just north of that is the Intrepid Sea Space and Air Museum, which I'm pretty excited about, um, and it's home of the retired Space Shuttle Orbiter Enterprise. Um, and I just got caught up in their website uh, this morning checking out all of the awesome programming that they have on offer right now, um, including a summer movie series. Uh, the next movie that they're going to be showing is Star Trek. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and a NASA Space Fest, uh, which is running now through July 28th. Excellent. Well, I mean, way to go from like one world to the next in, in one in one morning, huh? <laughs> exactly. So what else is going on uh, at the Grand YC markets um, that we should be keeping our calendar clear for? Yeah, um, this Saturday is a pretty big one at Union Square. Um, there's a book signing with Drew Ramsey and Jennifer Isserlo. Um, they're the authors of Fifty Shades of Kale, and that's, uh, we're partnering with Food Book Fair on that one. Um, and then Quincible will be coming to do a cooking demonstration, which I'm sure will be delicious and featuring all the seasonal products at market right now. Um, and then over in Grand, at Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn, uh, Rosewater Restaurant will be coming to do the cooking demonstration. Um, they're a great restaurant that's been supporting our farmers since 2000, so I'm sure it'll be delicious. Um, and we wanted to remind our shoppers that Rockefeller Center Green Market is open, um, and it'll be open on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays this season. Um, and then a lot of our markets are starting a frequent shopper program in August, so check in at your neighborhood market for more details on that. Um, you'll have chances to win prizes for checking in at the market information tent each week. Excellent. Um, and you can visit growingyc.org slash rmarkets to find out more information on cooking demos, book signings, and giveaways, um, and what's happening each week at your neighborhood green market. Caroline, thank you so much for the update. Uh, looking forward to heading up to uh, 40 West 42nd for a little uh, produce and outer space action. That sounds awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Erin. For folks who want to stay up to the moment moment with the Grow NYC Green Markets, definitely check them out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr. They got it all. The best kind of uh, veg pictures, produce pictures, livestock pictures that you're going to see anywhere, and then all the latest and greatest and what's coming in and what not to miss. And then, of course, stay tuned next Thursday for another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Just